0: I realize that my appearance and my size, I mean, I'm 6'4", 240 pounds. People listen to me when I walk in a room, right or wrong, you know who I am.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This is a special edition of Alpha Chat in which we bring you the story of second acts and new beginnings in the age of automation. It's part of an FT special report on health at work. That voice you heard at the top of the show, that belongs to Tom Gordon. He spent 25 years as a successful commodities floor trader in the testosterone-fueled pits of the New York Mercantile Exchange, eventually becoming the vice chairman of the board. But when electronic trading upended the way he knew how to trade on the floor, he left it all and became a social worker, specializing in substance abuse and recovery.
0: I sit down there and all 240 pounds of me, I get tears in my eyes and they say, that's why you get to do what you do.
1: Tom's life today is a far cry from where it all began. Nearly 40 years ago, on a school trip to Wall Street, he was 19.
0: And I, you know, I was feeling b- pretty good about myself, so I put on a corduroy suit and I said, "Oh, I'm going to go look for a job." And I brought resumes, so here I'm like this country kid, corduroy suit. It's May, really not the you know, really not the proper type of attire. So there was this big black building. And I said, "Oh, it says Merrill Lynch. I've seen that name on a commercial."
1: So he goes in, asks for the employment department, and rides the elevator up the building.
0: And I had my resume and I went to hand it at the desk and I said, well, like an interview. And I says, well, that's not the way we do it. And I said, but I'd really like to talk to somebody. And I really wanted to talk to somebody like, hey, I'm here. I've got, you know, I'm something worth looking at.
1: Tom would soon be thrown into the deep end of the frenetic world of commodities pit trading.
0: It's quite the sexy place to be.
1: He was a quick study and an enterprising young guy adapting to the ebb and flow of the market. Two traits that would come in handy many years down the line. At 22, Tom was a trader on the floor of the New York Mercantile Exchange. It was 1983, and NYMEX, as it was known, had just introduced crude oil on the floor. This was the contract that would put the exchange at the center of the global energy market for the next two decades or so.
0: The trading floor was an interesting environment. It was a bit locker room. You had locker room uh, uh, humor, it was f- predominantly male, and it would not be uncommon to be standing next to somebody who uh, had dropped out of high school and somebody who, you know, went to the Wharton School of Business.
2: It was loud, it was crowded, it was frenetic, there was the sound of people making and losing lots of money.
1: That's FT Markets reporter Greg Meyer.
2: Uh, One former floor trader described it to me as a cross between Goldman Sachs and a maximum security prison. A pretty wild place to work.
3: I think people called it like the 13th grade. And that's the voice of Cindy
1: Rifkin. She joined NYMEX as a floor clerk when she was 19.
3: Because a lot of people didn't go to college. There was fights. There were lots of fights. And then maybe they would take it outside, even though they weren't supposed to. And, like, there were definitely, like, people yell at each other in their feet. I mean, like, in the face. And then, you know, a few minutes later, they were, like, hanging out and chatting.
1: Tom and Cindy became friends outside of the pit much later in life. But she remembers him from the floor.
3: So I remember being in the crude oil pit where he traded. And he would make fun of my height You know, he'd make fun of my shoes that they were so small or my feet were so small. I could say I
0: was a little bit of a social misfit, which would be correct. My forte was not the human relationships. I researched like a madman.
1: For most of his career, Tom was one of the independent floor traders that didn't work for a big brokerage firm. He wore a badge that read T-I-G-R, as in Tiger. And from 10 o'clock in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Tom and hundreds of his fellow floor traders would pack into the circular pit on the NYMEX floor, Barking buy and sell bids that effectively set the global price of a barrel of oil.
0: It's almost one of those things where words kind of fail. Because when it was busy, similar like athletes would talk about going into a zone. I would go into a zone and, and... Time and space took on a different dimension. It'd be really difficult. I mean, it f- frenetic. The the you know during during some of the crises that we saw, the Gulf War, that the spike hike that took the the market uh, to heights we never would have expected, 130, 140 dollars a barrel. Uh, the frenzy behind it was so adrenaline filled, and the bits of information that one would digest is is to me now that I think about it, that I'm a little older and removed from it is almost unfathomable. It It was extremely exciting.
1: You might think of traders in the pit as the finance industry's version of hard, physical labor. Floor traders, like those in the manufacturing jobs, they would soon become victim to the electronification and automation that continues to sweep industries and disrupt the way a lot of work is done.
0: With some of the Misconceptions that people had had with floor trading is is they thought it could never be replicated on a computer or a trading screen, or that that there could ever be anything that could handle the amount of volume. I think we we had a, a myopic idea of of our importance.
2: You know, in, in an age when communication was largely through telephone and through telex and. Means like that, having the floor was a way to bring together those lines into into one place where people could transact. But being on the floor also gave a trader an advantage over other people in the market, which is why seats on the floor sold for lots of money. Basically, it gave you a privileged vantage on flows of money on supply and demand for barrels of oil in the market. You could see that ahead of others. And you could trade ahead of others.
1: Electronic trading was first introduced overnight only.
2: Because the exchange was owned by the seat holders. It was owned by the people who had seats on the pit. So they had zero economic incentive to create an alternate pool of liquidity that could divert volumes away from their business.
1: But that didn't last for long.
2: The the NYMEX competed with the International Petroleum Exchange in London. The IPE. the IPE was acquired by the Intercontinental Exchange, which happens to be based in Atlanta, Georgia, which very quickly converted it into an all-electronic exchange. And so the NYMEX was forced to react and allow side-by-side trading on electronic screens.
1: The technology that allowed for that side-by-side trading was developed by another rival, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, or CME as it was known. It was called Globex.
0: It happened so fast.
1: And Globex was an immediate threat to the floor traders. This is 2006. Greg has reported that by June 2007, electronic trades rose from 17% to 70% of NYMEX volumes.
0: People quit. I mean, I stopped trading. You had the people that were market makers. What came about was this whole new force of people who were electronic market makers. Where I saw it coming, I could see it was coming. And it was fine with me because I was I knew that after trading the way I, I traded, the the volume of trades... And the demands that it took on me, I had said, I'm going to do this for 25 years and I, I have to be done. It was hard because some of the last years were some of the best ones I've ever had. When we saw the handwriting was on the wall, I was enrolled to go back to school. and I was planning my exit as it was.
1: Tom had long planned to go to university and get his bachelor's degree. So when electronic trading upended his prowess in the pits, he started the process of enrolling at a local college in Manhattan.
0: What was I going to do with my life now that my career as a floor trader was done? The floor didn't exist in the niche of, even though there was a a physical trading floor, my niche was long gone. And the idea in my next career of following through with finance or something similar just didn't appeal to me so much. It wasn't so much that I felt guilty, but I wanted to give back in some way.
1: But his friends and former colleagues from the floor had other plans for him. As electronic trading started to eat into the volumes handled on the floor, NYMEX executives were also preparing for an initial public offering on the New York Stock Exchange. For NYMEX members like Tom, who own seats or the right to trade on the floor,
0: there was a lot of money at play here.
1: And soon after Tom left to go back to school, the other independent traders encouraged him to return and run for a spot on the NYMEX board.
0: Here were these, you know, these floor traders and, and, the, and their brokerage firms and so on and so forth, and they feel like they had any representation.
1: Once on the board, he joined a committee tasked with helping the floor traders through the transition to electronic trading. But he soon found himself in over his head.
0: My concern was about the people on the trading floor and how we could best helped them to adapt and not all the decisions were made to their benefit one of the big decisions we made and even though i was you know either chairman or vice chairman of the committee and didn't understand because i was so naive is when we did transition to electronic trading is we were giving we were giving wireless technology and laptops to trade on the floor what they didn't tell us is that the latency which means that the delay Sometimes it would be would be close to a minute. Sometimes the screens were just absolutely locked out.
1: In trading terms, a minute could mean thousands of dollars or more in
0: losses. That's where I got my clock cleaned. People were ill prepared to transition themselves. Not everybody, you know, had had the wherewithal or whatever to try and go from a new career and start off from the bottom, and and that. And that's really hard. I've heard some terrible life stories and of people who have died prematurely from addiction and alcoholism. And people have gotten in tremendous financial difficulties and going bankrupt. And for many of the people, really, it broke their lives. It really broke their lives in their spirit. You know, you hear of people working in schools as janitors. Here, these guys were making at least a six digit figure salary. It was like death, really.
1: That's Cindy again. She's talking about the mood on the floor as electronic trading slowly pushed out the floor traders.
3: It was like, it became very, like, skeleton there. Even as people started to leave, you could still see the people that died out, literally. There were people that became bus drivers. There were people that work in delis. There were people that work at restaurants. There were people that own restaurants. There were people that have tried other businesses and that continued to take risk and figure it out. And there were people that went to work for other people and are working much longer hours, downsized, you know, sold off things. Um, I think a couple of people killed themselves. I think one guy robbed a bank. Uh, I think that people died of heart attacks, alcoholism, drug addiction. I mean, again, I think that that happens. I became a yoga meditation teacher teaching self-awareness. And Tom, who climbed the
1: ranks of the board to vice chairman, he walked away from the NYMEX for good in 2008 after the exchange was acquired by the CME. Much of Tom's story up until this point may sound like a familiar narrative. A lot of men and women in their mid-career Whether in financial services or manufacturing or other sectors, they might find themselves pushed out of work as algorithms and computer science majors start doing the work quicker, cheaper, and in many cases across time zones. But it's the second act of Tom's career where things take an interesting turn. Settling into life outside of the exchange proved tough for Tom. He had just come off months of negotiating the merger with the CME, and it was 2008. Lehman Brothers would file for bankruptcy weeks after his departure. Where was he supposed to go next? He tried to tinker with electronic trading from home. He even worked for a medical device company for a stint. And the transition also took a toll on his personal life. His first marriage ended not long after he left NYMEX. He was back to being a bachelor, this time in his 50s. But by 2011, he got that degree.
0: I had completed it. So I thought I was done. This was it. And I had talked to a friend of mine who was in the counseling field about becoming a CASAC, a certified alcohol and substance abuse counselor? It was back to the original idea of being of help. I knew from, the, from being involved in the exchange politics that I had a, a gift of being able to discern certain things. And I sat down with her and I said, uh, I think I want, to, I, I want to be a KSAC. What do you think?
1: And this is only about five days after he finished school.
0: And and I was toast. Let me, you know, I I couldn't rub two words together. She said, you know, if you're going to do that, I think that what what would be better for you is you should get your master's in social work. (laughs) And I cursed her out. And I was like, there's no way. That's never going to happen. I am so done. I am absolutely so done with school. I've done it. I've conquered the beast. And... Just a few days after the conversation, I still don't even understand. I can't explain it. Uh, I started looking at, at graduate school. Shortly
1: thereafter, he was enrolled in classes at New York University School of Social Work.
0: I learned so much. Uh, here I was a guy from Wall Street. You know what we what they call in 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 um, social work uh, school is the mythic white male. You know we were the source of of a lot of prejudice and oppression, abuse. And I didn't realize that at the time when I was showing up naively to this school. (laughs) I realized that my appearance and my size, I mean, I'm 6'4", 240 pounds. People listen to me when I walk in a room, right or wrong, you know who I am. Um, And in school, it it was, uh, I would sit in a classroom often with all women. Here I was, a heterosexual white old male. I'm either Uncle Creeper or we don't know what to do with this guy. But all of these things were a leveling of pride, which which um, have given me a new sense of things. I spent my the better part of my first month or two of my intern hours in a file room in a hot, windowless, bad fluorescent lit, File room. It was like being sent to the cornfields. (laughs) I have um, even immersed myself financially in certain ways to um, live quite simply and make choices I haven't made in 35 years. I live rather parsimoniously now um, and think about choices between, you know, things that. You know, not in the range of before, where they were five, six, and seven digits. Whereas sometimes I'm thinking between it's 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 a dollar and ten dollars. I drive a Subaru. I mean, I could do otherwise. You know,
3: I'm so amazed by what he and and what he's done to go back to school because I haven't done that. And I don't have any education, so it's like I'd have to start from the beginning. But if you want it, and he did it, I mean, yeah. You know, other people had more money and they had more blessings, but it takes a lot to move through what he moved through and to get to where
0: he is.
1: And so today, Tom counsels young men and women dealing with addiction in a clinic in upstate
0: New York. Totally contrary to almost all schools of thought, I lead a women's domestic violence group. These girls are younger than my daughter. <laughs> and the richness of, of what I, I am able to be a part of is beyond words. I sit down there and all 240 pounds of me, I get tears in my eyes. And they say, that's why you get to do what you do. There's rarely a school of social work or or so many women's groups would ever say that makes sense.
1: Now, Tom and I have met several times this year. And in each conversation, he's eager to reflect on why he does what he does. It's not hard to hear a bit of hesitation in his voice, a bit of resistance to starting a new career in his 50s.
0: It's fascinating. You know, I've turned my world upside down. My boss, God bless him, I, he's young enough to be my son. How does he manage this? How does he manage me? Rarely a week goes by or I don't go home from work right now and there's this kid, little kid inside of me that says, F this, I, what am I doing? I'm passionate about what I do, but for me retiring, and go into some, some warm place. There's an attractiveness to it, but I couldn't do it.
1: Retiring and going to a warm place, it's the kind of thing a lot of guys Tom's age who've had similar careers would probably prefer.
0: I had had this vision. It's funny how things come to you, you know, like these little stories, like a parable, or, and I, you know, I saw myself, I get to heaven. And whoever it is, St. Peter's there is doing his checklist and he's saying, Oh, you know, okay, you do oh, look at this. Two handicapping golf. Sweet. And then he flips on this TV and he shows me what could have been. And that choked me up. That I could have taken my gifts and and as I look at it soberly, is it is it really all about me? You know, is it really about me? So
1: if you think about that teenager who marched into the Merrill Lynch building almost 40 years ago looking for a job, he couldn't have predicted the way technology would upend his career, nor could he have understood the kind of personal reinvention that would come with it. But in his second act... Thomas found himself immersed in the kind of work that, at least so far, can't be done by an algorithm or a
0: robot. These are people's lives that, that I'm blessed to have come my way. And they entrust me with their heartache. And they don't know why people tell me things. I don't know why. I mean, I'm not a small guy. I can be a little gruff. I hear the stories almost weekly of young kids and they're overdosing. If this is the world we left behind then I want want to do my part. Will I make a difference? I don't know. But I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it a shot.
1: This podcast was produced as part of an FT special report on health at work. You can read more at ft.com forward slash health hyphen work. Special thanks to Tom Gordon and to Cindy Rifkin for taking the time to speak with me. And for sharing their experiences with us, and to the FT's Greg Meyer for being a fount of information on the inner workings of the New York Mercantile Exchange. We'll be back on Friday with a regular episode of Alpha Chat.